across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. Talk Radio Breakfast with Mike Graham. In for Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Good morning, it's Tuesday the 18th of February. You're listening to Breakfast with Mike Graham, standing in for Julie Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. Coming up, dozens of people have spent the night away from home as severe flood warnings remain in place across parts of the UK. One woman died after being swept away in flood water in Worcestershire, while hundreds of homes have been flooded in extreme weather caused by Storm Dennis. Lots of people suggesting that Boris Johnson should be out and about making sure that everybody knows that he's in charge and that he's doing something. I'm not sure that's necessary, but by all means, uh, let us know what you think. 0344... 499-1000. You can tweet us as well at Talk Radio. Also, in the next 15 minutes, I'll speak to a talent agent who knew Caroline Flack, as it has now emerged that she told police she would take her own life following allegations she assaulted her boyfriend in December. Uh, she was apparently very worried about some body cam footage that the police had uh, of the incident in question. And yesterday, Extinction Rebellion dug up the lawn at Trinity College in Cambridge. It was an act of vandalism, nothing more, and it has not gone down well with anyone. The police just let them get on with it. I'll speak in the next hour as well to the Minister for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng. I'll ask him what on earth he thinks Extinction Rebellion are up to. Plus, I'll be joined later in the show by legendary music producer Steve Lillywhite, ahead of the Brit Awards tonight, which themselves admired in some kind of controversy. It's six minutes past seven. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Talk Radio Breakfast with Mike Graham. In for Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Know your times. I'm in the company of Steve and Alan, comedian from the Mass Report, and Emma Webb, uh, director of the Forum on Integration, Democracy, and Extremism at Civitas. We've already had a bit of a rant about uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, let's talk some more about the floods, though, now, because uh, a lot of pictures on the front pages this morning. The Guardian itself has got one of people bailing water out of flooded homes after the River Wye burst its banks in Ross on Wye in Herefordshire. Wales has been hit terribly badly as well. Uh, let's speak to John Morris, who's a councillor for Crickhowell in the Brecon Beacons. It's been cut off. Off the river Ersk burst its banks near a bridge at Supply and Artery Road, uh, and things are pretty bad there. John, uh, thanks for joining us. Very good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are things there today, John? We're told there might be a little respite in terms of the amount of rainfall, but obviously you've got very, very poor um, um, sort of drainage going on there. What's the situation? Yeah, well, this morning it's a lot better. The river has dropped and um, the access roads into Krakow are now available and open except for Krakow uh, Bridge which uh, had serious damage to it but hopefully that will be open this afternoon all being well. Okay and I mean the yeah. terrible tragedy for many people living there is that this has happened before and, and may well happen again. Is there any anything that, that you think can be done to, to safeguard them? Yeah, um, I mean, this, this was a major incident. A huge storm surge came down the river, uh, got over the earth banks, and many, about 30 residential properties and businesses were, were damaged. Uh, yet we need to look at this again. We need to make sure that if we're going to be flooded, we've got precautions there, we've got sandbags there, and we just need to structure our, our building going forward and our villages so that we can avoid this as much as possible. I mean, a lot of people talk about river dredging as being something that hasn't been done as much as it should have been done. What's the situation with, with the dredging, for example, of River Usk? Yeah, you, you couldn't dredge the Usk. It's, it's, it's not for dredging, really. But we do have uh, sort of floodplains on either side, which I think would be a better bet to allow the water mm. to 
flood, but also to protect the housing in the areas of the villages and the towns in the area as well. Mm. So, I mean, it's something that happens literally just when you have a very big volume of rain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've had it twice now this winter. Yeah. This was a major one. This is the biggest one we've had since 1979, and it's called it's called huge disruption. Um, and it, it does require all the authorities, all the agencies, to get together and to have mm. a major plan because the one that we have at the moment obviously isn't working. It's not working. The government says that they've got a plan uh, and it says that it's working on flood defences. I've got a minister coming on this morning, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, who's going to be telling me how they're going to spend £90 million pounds, uh, on reducing uh, carbon emissions. I'm going to suggest to him uh, that he gives it to you. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love it. I mean, obviously, we've got the Welsh Government here that, that, that say similar things. And, and there is some work being done, but, but we need to speed up the, what's being done and make sure that we're prepared, you know, for the years ahead when we'll mm. have much more flooding. And is there a sort of, you know, red tape um, problem here as well? Because obviously you've got to go through from central government, maybe down to the Welsh Assembly, then back up to your own personal, uh, or not your personal council, but your own council. I mean, is, is, it, is it inefficiency, perhaps? Well, there's quite a number of agencies which include National Resources Wales in, in Wales as well, and it isn't helpful. Well, I'm trying to get hold of somebody uh, to help out that we have two or three agencies to go through, mm. and this is what we need is the coordination and quick reactions as well. Yeah. So should there be a sort of department for flood defences or something like that? I would have thought so. Yeah, I, I think that sounds so. like a good idea. Yeah. I've come up with a yeah. brilliant idea, John. Listen, thank you. Good luck with it today. Uh, and hopefully things don't get any worse later in the week. That's John Morris, Councillor for Crickow. Let's talk to Laura Dawson now, Communications Advisor at the Association of British Insurers. Laura, I imagine this is a bit of an expensive time for your, uh, uh, your clients. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm afraid it's uh, too early to say um, how how much this will cost. Um, sort of being flooded is a very, very distressing and destructive and destructive experience. And it's important people understand that insurers do understand this. And their priority will be um, to get to their customers. And their customers can expect that their insurer will do everything to help pick up the pieces and get their lives back on track as soon as possible. Yes. I mean, watching the news last night uh, from, um, I think it was Hereford, there were some people clearly who had moved out of their homes, other people who decided they wanted to stay in their homes, and many of them, amazingly, still had electricity, even though it looked like there was about two feet of water in the street. I mean, some of the, the problems for people are just finding alternative accommodation for a while. Yeah, this, this can be a problem, but insurers will... Um, so right now what is happening is insurers will be making emergency payments so um, people affected have money and then arranging for alternative accommodation as, as quickly as they can. Um, this, is, this, this can be um, quite difficult, especially when there's, when there's a lot of... Um, when, when such a significant flooding, but insurers are working around the clock to make sure people are rehoused where they need to be. And what happens to people who have been flooded? Are they going to suffer from increased premiums? Are, are insurance companies getting better at understanding that? So um, on the co uh, sorry um, uh, on the premiums, um, thanks to Flood Re, um, which was created in 2016 um, and industry led, um, it means that people can afford um, afford there is affordable flood cover for people in high risk areas where previously they might they might not have had cover. Um, because of flood we will be able to do it. This is an industry-backed scheme that um, insurers pay into, so it allows them, when flooding hits, they can take money out of this fund to pay for repairs for, for their customers, right. and the customers' premiums will not be affected. 
Um, for example, four out of the five, five homes with previous floodplains have seen a premium reduction of more than 50% thanks to flood rates. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan because I know when my house was flooded, there was, there was nothing like that. And what about the insurance industry itself and its kind of lobbying of the government to do something about making flood defences better, if that's possible? Well, we have been um, calling on the government to transform flood defence investment. And what's required is a long-term government commitment to increase both capital and revenue investment in flood defences and resilience. This can um, involve... This is building new flood defences and also maintaining existing flood defences to make sure communities are protected. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Laura Dawson from uh, the Association of British Insurers. I'm with uh, Stephen Allen, comedian uh, for the Mash Report, Emma Webb from Civitas. Um, funnily enough, I was listening to James Whale last night on Talk Radio and a guy rang in and said, I know this is going to sound mad, but why don't they just build these big sort of drains? And, and I don't know if either of you have been in Los Angeles where they have those massive storm drains. And in fact, they, they feature in uh, the Terminator film, you know, the, where, the, where the guy's in the lorry chasing down the kid on the motorbike. And they're these massive storm drains, which is a general rule, are completely empty and with nothing in them at all but whenever there is a massive surge of rain they carry all the water away um, and I know they've got problems with, with other things in LA but I mean they don't get flooded mm. I mean, Maybe that is what we need I suppose it's worth bearing in mind we do have some flood defences but they are breached when extreme weather events get more extreme mm. and that might be what's happening here because I, I, we've always had some flooding news yeah. every so often, but it seems to be getting worse. So we will need bigger and better solutions. Yeah, I think so. Emma, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, from talking to that councillor, that there are an awful lot of agencies involved, and maybe they just ought to simplify it and have one mm -hmm. sort of serious... Eight, I mean, a lot of people yesterday were running around saying, why are they not having a Cobra meeting, as if that would solve anything. <laughs> you know, you might have a, you can have a meeting, but it doesn't really do anything. But if you had sort of, you know, a rapid response operation going on perhaps which you could do on a national basis yeah i think that um obviously flooding is something that's always going to happen and you can have as many defenses mm. or and you know take as much action as you like and there are always going to be natural disasters that the government just needs to have the resilience to be able to deal with that as well as possible i think obviously from the photos we've seen and from the things that we've heard especially about where money's been spent mm. um obviously that's something that the government can do better and they should actually and not just for the sake of optics, but actually look to see you know, how can we be better spending money to protect these areas. As they were saying, they've already been flooded twice in quick succession. Mm. Uh, obviously, more money needs to be spent in those areas. And it might be a case of looking at, you know, agricultural policies and things like that. You know, what can we do? You mentioned river dredging yeah. earlier and that kind of thing. There are obviously... Um, everything from small to large solutions that can be done in these areas to protect people's properties and mm. their livelihoods. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Well, let's talk to Quasi Kwarteng, who joins us now, Minister for Business, Energy and Clean Growth. Quasi, very good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Uh, you've just heard Steve Van Allen there, first comedian I knew who was an expert on chemistry, um, explaining really how uh, it's actually not a bad idea to create hydrogen plants, but how, how soon can they be created and, and precisely how will you create them and where? I think that it's uh, a really important uh, technology. It's a clean uh, technology. And also it will in generate enough energy, I think, in the first instance to heat over 200,000 homes. Now, this isn't something that's going to happen uh, next week. But uh, the investment is something which uh, over the, the course of this decade, the 2020s, is something that we really want to see take off. And I think it's really important also to mention the fact that uh, as far as Europe is concerned, the, the continent, uh, these are the first 
uh, hydrogen production uh, plants uh, across across Europe. So it's an industry again, a, a new industry which we are uh, thankfully right in the, in the in the in the front line. We're we're at the top. Uh, uh, one of the top countries in terms of developing, and, and so technology. and so, who would who would be building these hydrogen plants? Is there a company that currently is an expert in such things? If if nobody's really doing it, and you want to be a pioneer, that's great. But I mean, who's going to who's going to then do it? So one of the things that it links uh, to it is uh, carbon capture, usage, and storage, which is CCUS, and that was something where we had a manifesto commitment, the Conservative Party manifesto commitment, to invest eight hundred million pounds uh, into it, and carbon capture is also a part of um, the hydrogen story in the sense that if you use uh, natural gas, uh, you can you can actually uh, uh, divide or, or split up the hydrogen from the, the CO2. And so as far as the, um, uh, the future goes, um, the government's putting out some rather mixed signals about electric cars, um, about the need for the banning of diesel cars and petrol cars. It started at 2040, it's 2035, now it might be 2032. But there's no actual commitment to that. Well, what we've said is that uh, clearly uh, electric vehicles is part, is a big part of our, our battle against, or rather our, our fight to uh, reduce carbon emissions. And what we're also saying is that we think that um, yeah, the Prime Minister has said that new petrol and diesel cars could be banned by 2035, but there will also have to be the adequate uh, charging infrastructure. So we're spending uh, £400 million, we've announced, uh, for the Charging Infrastructure Investment Fund, and there'll be thousands more charge points. And once we've actually got the infrastructure, then there's nothing to stop people actually buying EVs. I think they're much more econ economical, and clearly they have a much, uh, a much better uh, impact on our environment, on our air, than simply burning fossil fuels. Yeah, but you can't just ban people driving around in diesel cars, can you? No, we've got to, we've got to, as I said, we've got to set up the infrastructure, we've got to set up, and we're investing in putting in charging points. And we're trying to encourage change. I mean, other technologies, if you look at things like iPhones, I know that's on a smaller scale, um, you know, they were adopted very quickly. And I think it's absolutely reasonable to suggest that uh, many people will, will want to move to EVs. The running costs of EVs will be much lower than filling your car with uh, diesel or petrol. And over time, this is our ambition. We think we can get, uh, we can get to a point where EVs are, are the absolute mainstay of have you seen? Of have you seen any credible science, though, which says that uh, the electricity required for all of this change over to electric vehicles, and I'm not just talking about cars, I'm talking about vans, I'm talking about trucks, I'm talking about buses, you know, where's all that going to come from? Well, we, we've got um, increased capacity. I mean, if you look uh, last year, we had a, an auction for offshore wind. Now, the offshore wind uh, in, uh, story has been a real success. It started off only six years ago at something like 120 pounds a megawatt hour. Now it's been reduced uh, to 40 pounds and it's very economical. And we can actually generate a great deal of uh, uh, capacity uh, through offshore wind and, and other forms of renewable energy. And also we've got, um, we've got the capacity, I think, uh, issue is something that we can deal with. We'll but do you, know how much, uh, do you know how much more electricity you will have to produce in terms of a percentage of what we currently it's, produce? It's very difficult to predict that because it's very difficult to know what the actual electricity demand will be in 10 years' time. What I can uh, assure uh, listeners about as Energy Minister is that we will have, whatever the demand is, we will be able to have the capacity, we will have the capacity uh, to deliver uh, on that electricity. One of our commitments as you probably know, is that we're going to have, instead of 30 
gigawatts, which was the target for offshore wind by 2030, we're going to have 40 gigawatt capacity. So uh, my job is to ensure that, that, that we have the capacity, and I think we, we will be able to do that. Now, it's un slightly unfortunate timing for you. I said this morning I felt a bit sorry for you, Quasi, because you know I'm going to ask you about the flooding problem in this country. Yep. And to announce a £90 million package for uh, reducing carbon emissions when people are underwater, uh, people I've already spoken to a Crickhowl councillor who said he'd quite like a piece of the £90 million, uh, this morning. If you can give him any money, that would be a big help. We're, we're investing also in flood defences. We realise that this is a, a big problem. My own constituency in Spelthorne, we had pretty bad flooding uh, six or seven years ago. Mercifully, uh, this year, we haven't seen it as bad as it was then, but there are parts of this country which have been really badly affected. And we are you know, deploying uh, something like five kilometres of flood barriers across the country. There are a thousand uh, environment agency staff working around the clock with the police, fire and rescue and other uh, and, uh, local authorities to deal with the problem. So it's something that's absolutely uh, a number one focus. And what do you say to those people who say that the Prime Minister should be out there meeting people, seeing people, comforting them? I'm not one of them, by the way. I don't think it does any good necessarily for the Prime Minister to be out and about when he could be working. But what's your view? Well, I don't know what his, his schedule is. I understand people want to have engagement from political uh, figures, people who make decisions. My understanding is that the Environment Secretary and his department are all over this uh, problem. I think it's, I, I'm a great believer in cabinet government. I think it's quite right that the uh, cabinet minister responsible, in this case, George Eustace, is leading uh, the response to this. And I think he's doing that very effectively. And what about Andrew Sabisky? Uh, here's a guy who gets hired into Downing Street uh, without many people seemingly knowing too much about his background. Uh, it all goes horribly wrong, uh, and he's now left. Are there any other people like him that have been hired under this new Dominic Cummings weirdo policy? Look, uh, uh, Sabisky's comments were completely unacceptable. Uh, they were absolutely they were racist comments. They were offensive. Nobody in Number 10 or the, or the Prime Minister or in the government uh, shares any of his views. And I think it was absolutely the right thing for him uh, to leave the government, to resign. I imagine he would have been sacked anyway. Uh, and I think he did the right thing. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, we just need to move on. Yeah, but what about anybody else who may be similarly uh, inclined to have what might be regarded as eccentric views, um, which may or may not be unpalatable? I mean, who's vetting these people? Look, I, I don't know about the views of all the people in the government uh, with regard to what Sabisky was talking about. His uh, views were unacceptable. They were racist. He's now had his uh, uh, employment terminated. He left, I think, voluntarily, but he would have probably been sacked anyway. And I think we can just move on. I don't know about uh, what the, the, the private views or, or, or views on, uh, on these uh, matters are of all the staff in number 10. I, I, no, I but might it not be wise that. for number 10, for the purposes of, of what things look like, to be a little bit more careful about who gets signed in? Absolutely. I think we've all learnt lessons. I mean, I've worked in different organisations before I went into politics. And, you know, once in a while, people get hired who are totally inappropriate. And when they are found to be inappropriate, they are asked to leave or they leave voluntarily. I think the Sabisky issue was unfortunate. I think his views were, as I say, unacceptable. They were racist views. He's now left the government and I think we can move on. And speaking of inappropriateness, what about Extinction Rebellion? You're the energy minister. Uh, they've been digging up uh, the ground outside of Trinity College. They've done it at the Home Office. It's very clear, it would seem to an awful lot of ordinary, good and right-thinking people in this country that these are anarchists who would like to see the end of capitalism. They've done little but, but create mayhem uh, and have acted as if they are vandals. Should the police not be cracking down a bit harder on them? 
Uh, just about Savisky, his views are unacceptable. They're not, they're not, they're, 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 I just want to make that very clear. As far as Extinction Rebellion are concerned, I think many people who are inclined to support them uh, and feel that their passion is, is really impressive, uh, many of those people are absolutely appalled at the criminal damage and the, the vandalism, frankly, uh, that, that they're seeing on, on television. I think to dig up uh, anyone's lawn uh, is an act of vandalism. If someone came around to your house and dug up your lawn, uh, you would you would rightly... I, I think, wouldn't stand all, around and watch him, I'll no, tell you that. And, 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 and I think everyone who has a lawn or a garden would feel exactly the same way. I think what they did was wrong. I, I don't think it, it helps their cause. I think it alienates people. But shouldn't the police be arresting them for it? Look, and I don't know what the Cambridge, doing it. You know, I, 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 uh, the energy minister. I don't know what the Cambridgeshire police policy was, or the the, the policy was of the of the uh, police in the town in Cambridge. I don't know what it was. All I saw on television was criminal damage, and I think it's completely, uh, completely unacceptable. Kwasi Kwasang, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Minister for Business, Energy and Clean Growth. We'll talk some more about what Kwasi had to say there. I think it's very clear that uh, he doesn't like um, the idea that people are being brought into Downing Street with unacceptable views. That's fair enough. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. We're talking about Extinction Rebellion this morning uh, because they are all over the papers as well, uh, having vandalised um, a, a lawn outside of Trinity College in Cambridge. The police seemingly standing by, allowing it to happen. You know, my question to you is, have they now outlived their popularity? Have you now decided, as many people have, that they are beyond the pale? They are simply all about destroying everything and starting again and tearing down what they regard as capitalism. Let's talk to Natalie Bennett, former leader of the Green Party. Natalie, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us. I don't know whether you think I'm being unfair to Extinction Rebellion, but I think some of their behaviour of late has not exactly endeared them to anyone. Um, I, think, I think you are being unfair. You know, we are in a climate emergency. They are doing a great job of highlighting that. You and I are now talking about the climate emergency. Well, no, we're not. We're talking about Extinction Rebellion doing. being vandals. I and mean, let's not talk about the climate emergency. They are, they are basically digging up and ruining a beautiful part of Britain uh, for what they regard as, as, as attention. This is a, a very carefully targeted um, uh, action. I mean, Trinity College has £9.1 million invested in oil and gas, um, the most of any Oxford college. They're threatening to sell um, a farm to become a lorry park for Felix Do Port. Um, this you know, was a very carefully targeted 
uh, educative action that's drawn lots of people's attention to what's actually happening. Well, yeah, but it's, uh, it's, it's the drawing attention to... We are, we, are, we are talking about a lawn here. Um, we are talking about a very small... No, so we can come and dig your lawn up, can we? Can we come and dig your lawn up, uh, Natalie? Um, you, you could, although actually what you'll find is a meadow that's full of wildflowers that the, the birds are eating the seeds oh, off. Okay, you. Wouldn't make much difference. wouldn't make much difference, to be honest. <laughs> that's in my uh, my terrace house in Sheffield, so um, uh, that's what I've cultivated. But, you know, what we're talking about here is a situation where we're in a state of crisis. We have Extinction Rebellion out there saying, you know, this is a nature emergency. If you look at um, the, uh, the similar action they did at the Home Office last week, which is to highlight the fact that in... What good did that do? There's a threat, there, there's a threat of an open, car, there's an open cast coal mine that is, again, destroying a, a beautiful wild meadow situation um, up in the north of England. Um, they're focusing on Barclays Bank, which is funding the climate emergency. These are actions that really highlight the issues in our society and where lots of No, they don't. Lie. They don't. They, they, all it is is a bunch of middle-class kids knocking about, having a bit of fun, you know, doing a bit of, uh, you know, what they call direct action. It's not having any... It's not having any good... Doing any good at all. You saw what happened when they came to London. People were so angry with them, they, they pulled them off the top of a tube train. And they also started to get very angry when they tried to block people from getting to work. And I'm, for, I'm afraid their message is being lost. And if you want to make a message actually be believed and a message be acted upon, you have to do it in such a way that people will sympathise with you. And I don't think they are doing that correctly. Well, you know, there are many people in Britain at the moment who are very angry, very upset, very fearful. They're the victims of the flooding, which is affecting so many communities across the country. You know, we are seeing more... Yeah, they're, they're not, more they're not, the they're not the supporting Extinction Rebellion digging up Cambridge, are they? The, the, the government, you know, is acknowledging that the climate emergency is going to make this worse, that it will not be able to defend people's homes. And oh, so I thought, you, I thought Extinction Rebellion said nobody was doing anything about it. Um, well, no, I, um, I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow that point. Well, Extinction um, Rebellion say the reason they're doing this is because the government's telling lies, it's not telling the truth about uh, climate change. You've just told me the government has acknowledged that climate change is a problem. Uh, acknowledging is not the same as action. Oh, right, so they're not the only country in the entire world that's actually committed to zero carbon. And the... Um, uh, no, they're certainly not, and we're not... Oh, which other countries... Which, which, sorry, which other country has done that? Um, Austria, 2040, we've only said 2050. Um, Norway... Um, is, that's is not true. They have not passed any law, like we have, which says that that's what they're going to do. Um, we, passed a law, we, we passed a law uh, which we're not living up to. The committee. No, but we've passed a law and nobody else has. Um, we, you, know, you can pass a law, you can unpass a law. Well, have Austria the passed a law or not? Yeah, uh, no, because no, they haven't. Just to it. Um, the, so actually we're the um, only country in the world that have committed to doing it in law. Um, I'm really not sure whether it's in law or not. Yes, it is in law, Natalie. It is in law. You should really know that. In terms of other countries, I'm not sure whether other countries have... Right. No, you don't seem very sure about anything. Thanks, Natalie. Uh, this is what we have to come up against, I'm afraid. People who are supposed to be knowledgeable on green matters. You don't know what they're talking about, for heaven's sake. Uh, this is, of course, Talk Radio. This is where common sense abides. This is where you come for information. Don't listen to the green lobby. Listen to me instead. Talk Radio Breakfast with Mike Graham. In for Julia Hartley-Brewer and The Times. Know your times.
Welcome back to Breakfast. I'm Mike Graham in for Julia Hartley Brewer here until 10 o'clock. Christo Fufas is here after that. Dan Wooten, of course, in from four on drive. That is where you will find him every single day now. Uh, Dan Wooten from The Sun uh, presenting the drive show. Fascinating show yesterday uh, that he did. It was a great uh, start to the week for him and I'm sure uh, today's will be just as good. We're going to talk now to Professor Anthony Glees. Uh, he's at the Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of Buckingham uh, because we're going to find out from him what he makes of uh, the latest attack on Huawei by Donald Trump, uh, who basically says that they're untrustworthy. I mean, this is certainly the American line which has been going out of the White House for some time because they don't want the five eyes, as it were, to be somehow uh, exposed to Huawei uh, for security purposes. Uh, Professor Anthony, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, mate. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, not terribly surprising this, I suppose, but what's interesting to me at the moment about the whole Huawei conversation is that we're hearing there's trade problems with China now because of the coronavirus. We're, hear we're hearing today that, you know, iPhones might be in short supply soon because, uh, you know, uh, productivity is massively down. I'm not sure how it affects Huawei, but it may affect them in some way, might it? Well, it, it may. I mean, I think the world generally, perhaps <laughs> the United Kingdom in particular, is in a very difficult place at the moment. And we are seeing a Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who is very strong politically with a massive 80-seat majority uh, after an election that was a very personal election, and he won it, and he now has the prizes that go with winning it, setting a course for the United Kingdom, which, <clears throat> to my mind, means that working together with whoever but particularly with Huawei, is the only way for Britain to move into the next phase of its economic and political life. So, uh, you know, I, I have said that uh, in respect of Huawei, we were between a rock and a hard place. Hmm. There is a real risk, and it's not just a risk of China spying on us, it is a risk that America and other Western allies will no longer trust us if we go with Huawei. But on the other hand, we cannot afford not to go with Huawei. Now, it's clear the decision has been taken to go with Huawei. We're buying the risk, as we are with Brexit, let's be honest. We're, we're taking those risks on the chin, and we have to storm forward, because there is no other place for us to go. I mean, I was told way back before this kind of decision was made that there wasn't an alternative really to Huawei in terms of the amount of, uh, you know, technology that they can provide. But is it not also the case that the government, whether they can be believed or not, have said that they're only going to give Huawei access to certain parts of the network, they're not going to give them absolutely kind of carte blanche. And I've always said maybe it's better that they're inside the tent, as it were, uh, rather, uh, you know, with, with access that we know about, rather than outside the tent, uh, gaining access that we might not know about. Well, Mike, I'm not a techie professor, but what we can say is that those techie professors who are uh, talking about this and, and educating us about this say, in effect, there is no difference between the core and the periphery in 5G. And that once you give the Chinese and unit 61398, which is the Chinese People's Liberation Army Intelligence Unit, access to any part of our 5G network, they automatically have access to every part of it. And this is the case that President Trump's uh, 
chums who are coming over to London may be, be, be here this morning. I don't know. This is the point they'll be trying to impress upon the British government. It's not simply that the Chinese might spy on us, but the Americans, for technical reasons, can't give us their intelligence because they will then be passing it, their argument, directly to the Chinese. I'm not sure that that is strictly uh, credible at this moment in time. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. The Chinese is an authoritarian communist regime run in a very different way from the way we run Western democracies. But they're trying to handle the coronavirus issue. They're trying to handle the Hong Kong issue. They're not at war, uh, and they may not be very you know, good customers for us to have. But as I say, there is no alternative. The only conceivable alternative would be some kind of European Union consortium where they would work together very, very quickly, a bit like the European Space Agency, perhaps, to generate uh, a European 5G network. But that's politically impossible for Brexiting Britain. Well, also, we then have to take uh, the European Union into our confidences as well, some of which might be fine, but not all of which might be something that the Americans were keen on. Professor, I've got to run because we're out of time, but thank you very much, Professor Anthony Glees. Uh, they're talking about the dangers of going into business with the Chinese uh, and the possible benefits of going into business with the Chinese. I don't think any of us know for sure whether it's a great idea. I think it's probably better to have them inside rather than outside, would be my argument. Let's talk, though, now uh, to somebody about something completely different uh, before we run out of time and before we take more of your calls. Dr Christina uh, Carlisi is lead author of a study from University College London uh, in which it's been revealed that hardened criminals have an abnormal brain structure and display aggressive behaviour from early childhood. Uh, Dr Christina, very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. Fascinating, this uh, kind of study, isn't it? Because it's always unusual to see um, that there is actual physical evidence sometimes for this kind of um, personality trait, I suppose you might say. Yeah, so what this study showed um, is that sort of in developed Western nations, 30 to 40% of males are convicted of non-traffic-related crimes. Um, but there's been decades of research which has shown that only a very small fraction of the population commits a relatively large fraction of these crimes. Um, so our study was based on a theory that was put forward in the early 1990s to sort of formalize the distinction between two possible pathways for the persistence of this antisocial behavior. Um, so the few adults who are antisocial almost always have a history of antisocial behavior uh, from the point uh, that they were children, whereas in contrast, the majority of, of adolescents who engage in antisocial misconduct um, sort of leave this behavior behind and do become law-abiding adults. Um, so we've sort of provided biological evidence to suggest that there is this distinction among people who are antisocial mm. at some point in their lives. So you would say, and, and the study does say this, I believe, that there's a kind of handicap at play here in some senses, but it can be corrected. Yeah, so we don't necessarily know from our study what the sort of causal relationship is. So we were not able to necessarily confirm whether these differences that we saw in the brain structure of persistently antisocial individuals is what caused them to persist with this behavior or whether this sort of lifetime of persistent behavior is what led to differences in the way the brain develops. Um, but what we do want to reinforce with our findings is that um, you know, we shouldn't necessarily tar all offenders with the same brush and that there is heterogeneity among people who uh, 
uh, commit crimes. Right. And is there any evidence of any sort of, um, you know, we talk about nature versus nurture all the time. I mean, if nature has created these people with smaller brains for whatever reason, um, are there any other factors, for example, that might have happened to them in the womb or other factors that have happened to them since they were born? Yeah, so again, we're not necessarily able to say whether those sort of uh, nature effects or the sort of genetic predisposition that shapes our brain development in early life um, was necessarily a causal factor for the later persistence of this sort of behavior. But what we do know, as you said, is that there's a lot of interplay across our entire development as humans uh, between genetic risk factors and the environments that we're brought up in and therefore the sort of genetic predisposition that we have sort of creates environments which then shape our later development. So there's a lot of interplay and interaction going on. And so it's a, a very complicated relationship and it's likely not just down to one factor in the sort of nature versus right. nature argument. And if you were to try and say take this to the next level, if you like, which would be presumably to, to try and act it out, as it were, so that if you were able to study every child that was born to enable you to, to somehow correct their behaviour. I dare say there would be quite an outcry about that. <laughs> yeah, so we're not at all suggesting that we should scan the brains of every young person uh, who, who is antisocial and, and, you know, we're not going as far as saying that any of this should be used as sort of any kind of evidence in court or things like that. We just don't have the technology at this stage to be able to use these brain scans at an individual level. Um, but again, what we do show at a sort of larger population level is that there are these differences in the brain that likely underpin the persistence of some of these behaviors and that perhaps uh, if we can sort of take a, an early intervention approach to some of these people that are antisocial from a very young age, we can perhaps begin to focus our resources uh, and provide a little bit of extra support for these particularly vulnerable people who are at a higher risk of continuing to persist with this antisocial conduct throughout their lives. OK. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Dr. Christina Carlisi, thank you very much indeed. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Um, we've got quite a lot going on this morning. Let's go straight now to Liz Bentley, Chief Executive at the Royal Meteorological Society, just to get a, a handle on how bad things are going to get. Liz, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, we were talking to a councillor over in Crickowl in uh, Wales uh, earlier on today who said that things look a little bit easier today. The water levels uh, from the River Usk have gone down to some extent. Uh, what are we looking at in the next sort of 24 hours to 48 hours weather-wise? Yeah, so you're right. So there are nine severe flood warnings in place at the moment, and that's changing all the while. So there's not a huge amount of rain falling from the sky at the moment, but that all that water that's gone into the river network is having to move through the rivers. So at the moment, we're actually peaking in the River Wye at Monmouth, um, and that's, that's peaking over the next kind of half an hour or so, and they've got seven metre high waters. That's the highest level they've ever recorded. Mm. And there are two severe flood warnings linked with that. As I said, there are another seven uh, severe flood warnings out there. Danger to life. So we're seeing a moving system at the moment, despite there being not a huge amount of rain falling from the sky. Yeah. Because... Unfortunately, though, the forecast has got more rain in, in it. Um, We've got showers today, a band of more organised showers coming through this afternoon. That'll bring some more rainfall for the areas that I really don't need anymore. Mm. Tomorrow we've got another band of rain coming through again on Thursday and it still remains unsettled as we go towards the weekend. So unfortunately we would love a bit of respite in the forecast, particularly from rainfall, but there is really no respite as we look ahead for the next four or five days. Yeah, what about the next couple of weeks? Because, I mean, we're not that far away from March now, and I remember the days when March used to herald the kind of snowdrops coming out, the daffodils, a bit of spring. It's not been terribly cold, has it? 
No, that's right. I mean, it, it is mild out there. We're starting to see the spring flowers coming through, but the mild weather, unfortunately, has meant that we've had a lot of wind and rain, so we've been under the influence of weather systems coming in off the Atlantic. We've got a really active jet stream at the moment, so the jet stream is a band of strong winds. It sits way above our heads, about 30,000 feet, and it's just bringing weather systems across the Atlantic, developing them into quite intense lows like Dennis and Kira that we saw over the last week or so. Um, and that's just unfortunately falling on saturated ground and causing the, the widespread flooding that we've seen over the last few days. Yeah, it's not going to be a very pleasant picture, I think, for an awful lot of people in parts of the flooded areas of this country. Liz, thanks very much indeed. Professor Liz Bentley there, Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.